What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello, and welcome once again to the PC Speaking Podcast. I certainly appreciate you taking the time to tune in and come along with me on this journey. Just a quick request before we get into our teaching for today. If you haven't done so, I would really appreciate a follow for the podcast on social media. I'm on Instagram at PC Speaking, Facebook at Christopher B. Miller. I'm on TikTok, Twitter, all that good stuff. And together as a team, we can get what I hope to be good biblical content in front of more people. So please follow, like, share, do all those things. It would mean uh, the world to me to do that. Um, Let's see, this week we're back in the book of Revelation. We've been going through the seven churches of Asia, looking at one church each week, and specifically looking for ways that we can take this content uh, from the Bible and apply it in ways that's going to live us more how Jesus wants us to live. Because to each of these churches, Jesus gives warnings. He gives encouragement. We can take those things that are encouragement. We can apply them in our own life. We can know that we're doing the right thing. And we can avoid those things that Jesus gives as warnings, knowing that those are things Jesus doesn't want us to do. And the application might be kind of complicated at times, but the basic premise is pretty simple. Do this, don't do that. Let's read our scripture for today. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. This is what it says. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like fine brass, says these things. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and that your last works are more than the first. But I have a few things against you. You permit that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she did not repent. Look, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will put her children to death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this teaching, who have not known what some call the depths of Satan, I will put on you no other burden, but hold firmly to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Like the vessels of a potter, they shall be broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, commenters speculate that Thyatira was probably the least significant city of the ones mentioned in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation out of these seven churches of Asia. Um, This one's probably the least significant city, but this particular letter is the longest amongst the seven. Thyatira was the center of manufacturing and trade. It was kind of like an industrial city, I suppose, more so than a cosmopolitan city. And when cities had large concentrations of artisan and craftsmen, I suppose, I mean, this would obviously still apply today, but they would try, what they would do is they would establish trade guilds, 
um, or unions. And it was normal for the organizations in the day that this was written to require the membership to participate in certain pagan activities because often the guilds and craftsmen were closely linked with certain temples and things like that. They would obviously require craftsmen and artisans to to build temples and, and create idols and all those kinds of things. In addressing Smyrna, who we previously talked about, the persecuted church, uh, you might remember that Jesus said, I know your poverty. And it seems reasonable to me to make the connection that in Smyrna, their poverty may have resulted from an unwillingness to participate in the pagan activities of the trade unions. And that would have been gaining, you know, made gaining employment difficult, led to financial hardship for the Christians in Smyrna. Unions and uh, commerce were linked with many pagan religious practices, idol worship, temple ceremonies, often involving sexual immoral practices, and if people, you know, if people make up a if people were to make up a religion, it's probably going to involve sexual immorality. And I think it's funny when someone says Christianity is a man-made religion because I think, well, if that's the case, why does it require me to discipline myself against so many fleshly desires? A man-made religion would not do that. It would lead to the glorification of those things and indulgence and immorality would become part of worship for sure. The connection between trade unions and guilds with immoral pagan practices made life difficult for early Christians. As you can imagine, uh, the unions, guilds kind of would have controlled who had a job, who didn't have a job. And if you were unwilling to participate in those practices, it would make it very difficult to find employment. Um, They got pretty excited about that stuff. Uh, Acts and Acts chapter 19 is a great example of that. Paul gets crossways with Demetrius, who was a silversmith who makes idols for the pagan goddess Artemis, pagan goddess of fertility, um, also known as Diana by the Romans. And of course, Paul's preaching the gospel as he does all throughout scripture. And when someone comes to a saving faith in Christ, that's it. There's no other worship. Jesus is Lord and him alone. So you can see how Demetrius, the silversmith, would get upset with Paul. He's ruining his idol business. As Paul preaches, people come to Christ. They stop worshiping uh, this fertility goddess, Artemis, and that ruins his business. Demetrius incites a riot, causing a lot of trouble for Paul and his companions. Anyway, you can read about that in Acts chapter 19. But as you think about those things, it may be kind of an overlooked area of friction between early Christians and the surrounding culture, but uh, economic struggles would have certainly been an area of friction for early believers because idol worship was not just a form of religion, but it was also, you know, part of the economy. And it seems that Thyatira may have been a church that didn't do so well at making the same distinctions that Smyrna did. Now, in this passage that we read, uh, the letter to the church at Thyatira, a lot is happening in this passage. It may even seem a little overwhelming to try to figure all this out, but as I've said several times, we're, we're not going to try to figure it all out today. But our focus is not so much to define the ambiguous and the enigmatic things as it is to look at what Jesus says and make practical application as we look forward to his return. And I always feel it's important to approach Scripture that way, looking for the practical application of it. As Jesus addresses each of the seven churches in Revelation, he 
he refers to himself differently each time, kind of introduces himself and says, you know, he's the one who's this or that or whatever it is he says. In Thyatira, he refers to himself as the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like fine brass. And just for fun, as a personal suggestion for your own study, uh, it may be interesting to look at how Jesus refers to himself as he addresses each one of these different churches. And then think about how that might relate to the encouragements and warnings he gives to each church. Um, In the way Jesus refers to himself in addressing our church today, Thyatira, I think he reinforces his divinity the eyes like a flame of fire, you could view that as showing his omniscience, his all-knowing nature and ability to see through falsehood and hidden intentions. uh, He has the ability to discern intentions of the heart uh, and the meaning and motivation behind people's actions, all those things he can do. And the feet like fine brass show his authority and strength. Uh, The imagery of feet suggests authority, his ability to tread on and conquer enemies like death and Satan. It kind of reminds me of Psalm 58 verses 10 and 11. It says, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And people will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. Uh, I'd like that verse. Not one you're going to see cross stitch on a pillow, but it sounds cool. Part of the Adamic covenant was that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent and feet of brass would certainly do that. And again, he says, I know your works, love, service, faith, your patience, and that your last works are more than the first. Jesus has some good things to say to the church at Thyatira, specifically in the way they minister to the needs of other people. So the church in Thyatira is doing well in ministering to other people. Jesus says they have even grown in those things, which is really cool. So there's a lot of positive things that we can learn from, that we could apply. Ministering to others is good. Uh, We can definitely apply that to our own lives, helping those in need, leading people to Jesus, helping others grow in their faith. But then here comes a rebuke. He says, I have a few things against you, as he does with many of these churches. Um, Not something you want to hear from the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like fine brass, but it's something we should certainly take notice of. And Jesus says, you permit that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. And we talked a bit last in the last episode number 106 about the food sacrificed idols kind of what that means how there's you know differentiation well it sounds like there's a differentiation between what paul says in first corinthians 8 and what jesus says here but it's really very similar in what they're both saying um but jesus rebukes his church for allowing themselves to be led astray by the prophetess jezebel Maybe you've heard the name Jezebel used symbolically. Ah, she's such a Jezebel, something like that. I haven't heard that in a long time, but I do remember hearing that in the past. In the Old Testament, Ahab married the pagan princess Jezebel. She caused all kinds of problems and led the Israelites into idol worship. She was an influence for evil among the Israelites. And it seems that Jezebel in our passage is to Thyatira what Jezebel in the Old Testament was to Ahab in the nation of Israel. 
Now, some translations even translate the word woman as wife in this passage. And Jezebel could possibly be referring to a group of false prophets in their teaching. It might not be just an individual, um, but either way, Jesus says you permit that woman Jezebel. Different translations uh, say allow, suffer, permit, Understanding that word permit in our passage is the key to understanding what's happening and how we can make an application today. What's going on is that the people in Thyatira go along with what Jezebel says. They permit her to seduce them into sexual immorality and pagan ceremony. Jezebel is busy leading people astray in the church of Thyatira and she is unhindered in doing so. And that's a problem. Uh, she's obviously a very charismatic and progressive Christian. I uh, have a reciprocal relationship with progressive Christianity. I call out their heresy and call them to repentance, and they keep my blood pressure high. Someone recently said to me, um, anyone with the ability to think critically in research knows that religion is snake oil. Now, the obviously, the obvious implication in that is that Christians are not critical thinkers. And the reality is, you know what? Christians are like any other group of people. Blanket statements are almost always inaccurate. Some Christians are critical thinkers and some are not. But for the Christians, here's a premise to think about. As Christians, whether we are a critical thinker or not a critical thinker, we are held accountable and called by God to be a critical thinker uh, because we need to think critically about the media we consume, the things we listen to, the places we go, the things we do, all that stuff requires critical thinking. Now I found it seems to be the case talking to different people and such that when someone throws out the phrase critical thinking, often what they mean is they mean you need to change the way you think so you can be smart and agree with me. But at the same time, they're kind of hiding behind that statement as a means of avoiding the application of critical thinking to their own philosophy and worldview. The definition of critical thinking is the objective analysis and evaluation of an issue to form a judgment. It isn't easy to apply that to yourself. It isn't easy to think critically about your own philosophy and worldview. It's uncomfortable to do that. We like to think critically about things we disagree with and other people's problems and social issues, but to think critically about our own philosophy and our own worldview is something, uh, gosh, we rarely, if ever, do because it's not that comfortable. We don't like doing that. But I believe that critical thinking is a foundational part of Christianity and something God calls us to. God confronts us in a way that requires us to think critically about who we are, how we think, what we do, and then form a judgment about what he says about who we are. To put it you know, simply, that judgment goes one of two ways. Uh, I don't agree with God, what God says or I do agree with what God says. Disagreement with God is rebellion. Agreement with God is repentance. Repentance is changing your mind to agree with what God says about you and about who you are. And that's not easy because it requires thinking critically about what God says about who you are. 
like he does with each of these churches that we're going through in the book of Revelation. You know, he confronts us all with, I know who you are, I know what you're doing, and there are positives and negatives to that. And there are some general positives and negatives for everyone. You know, there's the positive that applies to everybody. We're created in his image and loved by God. But then there's negatives that apply across the board as well. Uh, We're also sinful, rebellious, separated from him. You know, and there's some blanket statements that do apply. But he loves us in such a way that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. We must think critically about ourselves and what God says and decide as to whether or not we, we, we agree with him about what he says. God, the gospel, and biblical morality confront us in a way that requires us to think critically about the very nature of who we are. And as human beings, we don't really like to do that. But one of the very first realizations in becoming a Christian requires us to think critically about ourselves and what God says about who we are. And I, man, I, I welcome critical thinking. I encourage people to think critically about Christianity, about the Bible, about what God says about themselves. Free speech, open dialogue, critical thinking, yes, please. All that stuff is good. It's, it's important and it's worth standing up for. But in those things also, honesty and truth are required. And I believe, I truly believe that critical thinking leads people to Jesus, not away from him, if it's honest critical thinking. Critical thinking is not only a key to becoming a Christian, scripture calls believers to discernment. And discernment is the ability to judge well, and you form a judgment through the process of critical thinking. And that's an ongoing part of life for Christians as we seek to serve and follow Jesus. We are constantly thinking critically about who we are, what we do, where we go, and what we follow, listen to, watch, and believe as Christians. You know, it's not something that we get anxious and stress about. We shouldn't, but it's something that we do. We think about it. We think critically about it. And it would be great if we, you know, when we come to know Jesus, um, we could just trust ourselves and go through life on autopilot, knowing that we're always going to do the right thing and we're always going to see things the right way. But see, we trust the Lord, not ourselves. So unfortunately, we just can't put ourselves on autopilot. We have to continue thinking critically. It'd be lovely if everyone flying a Christian banner could be trusted and you didn't have to think about it and be really nice. And I know some people kind of view it that way. They just kind of swallow whatever you know happens to come along. But the problem is, is it's not always good stuff. It's not always the case that things that say they're Christian are good because some of them are like everything else. Um, in regards to that, what we're about to talk about requires balance. It requires critical thinking. Um, it's easy to take the concepts of critical thinking and discernment too far. Um, it's also easy to not take them far enough and inevitably people are going to fall off in either direction. As some Christians don't think critically at all, uh, some do it too much. And some Christians, every time they listen to a speaker, a podcast, or read a book, they only look for what's wrong. And I've had a lot of experience with that. They watch, listen, and read for the sole purpose of finding something wrong. And when someone does that, they don't learn because they're not listening to learn. They're listening to, yeah, look for something wrong. And that's that's only partly critical thinking. 
And when people do that, though, what happens is their spiritual growth stagnates and they kind of get stuck in a rut. Everything becomes a boogeyman and false teaching is waiting around every corner, crouching to jump out and attack them. And I see that in a lot in the world. I do a lot of interaction on social media and our community and things like that. And I see that a lot in our community and around the world. And you know, I, I see that as people who are lost sheep without a shepherd and they really need a shepherd to be part of a church. And it's important. It's important. And we'll talk some more about that in a minute. But there are people who, you know, although not perfect, can be trusted. There's people worth listening to. There's a ton of them out there um, who, are, who are really good teachers and worth listening to. You know, nobody's perfect. We're all going to make occasional mistakes, but it's not the end of the world when somebody does that. Does that? It's not necessarily a reason to write them off. And Christians who <clears throat> are discerning can figure that out fairly easy. You know, they they can sort out who's who quickly. And part of being a follower of Jesus and obeying Him is thinking critically about what that means and how to do it, and that requires discernment because not everyone. Flying a Christian banner is someone who should be followed or believed. It's just the reality. There's charlatans out there. There's, there's some literal snake oil salesman. You know, I can see why that bothers some people. But we should think critically about what we consume, what we listen to, and what we follow. And Christians today have to do that more than ever before in history simply due to the fact that there is so much information available, so much media available. It's like the double-edged sword we talked about in the last episode. You know, it's awesome that there's so much information available. It's kind of a pain though. If you're trying to get a podcast up and rolling, you're, you know, uh, a drop in an ocean. But at the same time, it's, it's great that there's so much information available, but at the same time, not all of that information is good. And it requires critical thinking to navigate that. And the church at Thyatira, with vastly less information to process than we have today, was not doing that. They weren't thinking critically. They weren't being discerning. And that's why Jezebel led them into sexual immorality in pagan practice. She was unhindered. That happened without resistance. That's what it means to permit her to do that. They had love. They had faith. They had good works. They were patient. They were growing. But Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. You permit that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. And permit means they, they go along with what she says. They had some good things, but they fell short in critical thinking and discernment which led to the church being infiltrated by idolatry and sexual sin and paganism. And there are, when we think about that, there are a couple of main things that require discernment. We're not really talking about fringe doctrines and gray area and splitting hairs, all that kind of stuff. We're talking about big things, major things. And we see these major things brought up repeatedly in scripture. And these are things that are serious enough to lead to the necessity of separation from that teaching or behavior. And we're talking, like I say, we're talking about things that are pretty black and white, not gray. And these are major problems addressed repeatedly in scripture over and over and over. Two things that consistently have plagued Christians throughout Christian history. One, 
is believing, teaching, or propagating a gospel that is not the gospel. And the other is normalizing unchristian behavior among Christians. The practice of immorality becomes acceptable within a church. That's a consistent problem throughout Christian history and also preaching a gospel that's not the gospel. Two, two main problems, two big problems. And a great, yeah, great majority of the unchristian behavior is sexual immorality. Probably gossip, backbiting, talking behind people back would, would probably be next in line after sexual immorality. But judging by what Jesus says to these seven churches and the rest of the New Testament, we will be doing well if we can keep the gospel in and immorality out. Take the gospel out to the world, but don't bring immorality back in when we return. And so how do we do that? What will help us become critical thinkers who hold tightly to the gospel and biblical morality? We don't compromise morality or the gospel. Um, I love to get out in, in the bush here in Australia and I love to go out and backpack. I love to have everything I need on my back. I can spend the night if I want to, if I need to. Every time I go out, I take enough gear with me that I could spend the night if I had to or even if I just wanted to. Um, it may not be a comfortable night necessarily, but I almost always have enough stuff that I can stay the night if I had to and, and get through the night okay. And I love getting off track and exploring new places. I love the quiet and solitude. But when you start exploring, you have to have a standard to determine where you're going, your map. And, you know, GPS has made that a lot simpler today than it used to be. But most importantly, I think, is you must know your starting point. You need to know where you're starting from. Um, and that's critically important because it's from there that you determine where you're going to go and how to get there and eventually how you are going to return because you need to do that as well. You got to get back to the car so you can get home. But if you don't know where you are on the map when you start, you know, you're, you're never really going to know where you are as you travel. And critical thinking requires a standard to judge by. For many people, that's their own thoughts, feelings, which I don't know, that doesn't really do a lot of good because one person's thoughts and feelings are no more important or reliable than anyone else's. And as Christians, we have the distinct advantage of a transcendent standard that is beyond our own thoughts and feelings. We discern what is the true gospel and right moral behavior by measuring against the standard of God's word. We have that transcendent standard to uh, use as a measure to think critically. And last week we talked about God's word being more than just true. It determines what is true. It's the standard by which truth is judged. And I think this is kind of an example of that. God's word is the standard a Christian uses to think critically and discern what's right and what's true and what's good. Christians must be critical thinkers and we must have a standard to measure by. God's word is the measurement we use. And the Bible talks a lot about you know, sexual morality, sexual immorality. And sexual, sexual immorality is anything that falls outside of God's intended context for exercising sexual desire. And the context God gives for exercising sexual desire is between a man and a woman who have entered into a marriage covenant together with God. 
And if a church has someone in a leadership position, for instance, exercising that desire outside of God's intended context, whatever it looks like, it doesn't really matter. If it's outside of that context, it, it's just, it's not what God intends. It's sin. And that's a problem. And that's not to say it's not a problem if it's happening among the congregation, if it's unrepentant. Uh, it's a problem, but sometimes that needs to be worked through in different ways for different people, where people are in their walk with the Lord. I mean, if somebody walks into church for the first time on Sunday and they're an unmarried couple and they're living together, you're not going to make a big deal out of it. You're not probably not going to say anything at all at first. These things kind of take some time to work through. So it all depends uh, with people in the congregation, where they're at, you know, whether or not they care about it, they're repentant, unrepentant, how long they've been around, all that stuff. There's variations. But if sexual immorality has gained uh, a foothold, a place among staff or leadership in church, the leadership in the church are affirming it. And unchristian behavior has been normalized in the church at that point. And that's not okay. And if you use the measure of scripture to think critically about that, you can't reach any other conclusion than to say, that's not okay, full stop. Now, the next thing that uh, will help us think critically about immorality in the gospel is not a thing at all, but a person, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God working in us, and He is our greatest asset. We also need to think about our relationship with Him, um, being receptive to him. Are we honestly receptive and living in obedience to him? You know, the more we do that, the closer we're going to get to God and the more his spirit is going to work in us. Now, one thing that I have seen happen a lot um, is the Holy Spirit gets blamed for a lot of silly and ridiculous behavior. And I get the impression that some Christians think that the Holy Spirit relieves them of the need to think critically or exercise discernment. What we don't want to do is conflate just simple base emotions and feelings with the work of the Holy Spirit. What happens when we do that is that if you feel good about something, it must be the Holy Spirit telling me to do it. Or if I feel bad about something, it must be the Holy Spirit leading me somewhere else. I've seen people make a multitude, <coughs> excuse me, a multitude of poor decisions uh, and, and blame it on the Holy Spirit. <sighs> that's, yeah, that's not the Holy Spirit. When we, when we think like that, when we base, you know, how we feel on, and then call it the Holy Spirit working in us, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's, humanistic paganism is what that is. The Holy Spirit, who he is and how he works, is a really big topic. We might do a whole series of podcasts on that down the track at some point, and we don't have time to get into all of that today. But there are a few important things to remember about God working in a believer. And one of those is if you're a saved believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And the more you connect with him, the more you are aware of the more aware of his presence you will become. Bible reading, prayer, fellowship with other Christians, all help with that. Uh, which leads me to the last asset that will assist us in our efforts to think critically and be discerning. 
And that's be a regular part of a church. You know, maybe you're a Christian who is listening to this podcast and you're not a regular part of a church for whatever reason. And man, I know there's a multitude of those reasons, but I would encourage you, be part of a church, find one that works for you. Again, this reminds me of Christians you know, around the world in our community without regular fellowship with other believers. And that's just not a good thing. Um, I know for many of you, and if, if you're a regular churchgoer, that's the one time of the week when you get the opportunity to be around other believers and talk about your faith and be relaxed about it. You don't have to feel like you're on guard. And for some of you, that may even be the case that that's, you don't even get to do that in your own home. So you don't want to miss out on the opportunity of being around other believers, Christians who are focused together on Jesus. Keep each other on the right track. We help each other do that. And if we stop thinking critically as a church, well, you know, we will end up like Thyatira. And as you read through the seven churches of Asia in the first few chapters of Revelation, I think you would be hard-pressed to find a problem amongst these churches that wasn't related to a lack of focus on Jesus in some area. And if we don't take advantage of regular fellowship with other believers, um, this is what happens. I have an offset-style smoker at my home. And I smoke brisket occasionally. It's a long process. Um, some of you might know what I'm talking about, but it takes anywhere from eight to 14 hours depending on the size of the brisket. And my smoker, it has a firebox off to one side and you that's where you build your fire and the heat and the smoke that travel through the cooking chamber and then out the smoke stack. And I love building the fire early in the morning before sunrise. And if you're going to do it right, you have to have the right fire burning in your firebox. You kind of burn it down to a bed of coals. That's ideal. And you try to keep it as close to that as possible all day. You want a small, hot fire. And you want that like nice blue smoke coming out of your smokestack that you almost can't see. See, if it's too white and too smoky, it'll it'll make your meat taste acrid. But with coals, you scrape them close together and you keep them kind of in a pile because if they're too far apart from each other, they'll go out. And if you have a bed of coals and you grab one coal with tongs and you set it outside the firebox and it won't take long for it to go out, it happens very quickly. And if a Christian is outside of fellowship with other believers, it won't be long before they go out, before they stop thinking critically. They may even stop thinking about the things of God at all or who knows what they'll get wrapped up in, um, all kinds of strange things. There's a lot in this this message to the church at Thyatira. But our takeaway for today is that we can avoid a heap of negatives by holding to the gospel and biblical morality as a church, to think critically and discern what that is and what that is not. And I think personally, what the great thing about that is that's something we can actually do. Uh, sometimes I think if we feel as Christians, it's like, oh, we're never going to, you know, achieve anything. And we're always kind of, you know, striving, 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 but never get anywhere. And well, to some degree, that's true. We're not going to be perfect. But I really think that, you know, keeping or not normalizing Christian behavior within church and holding to the true gospel is something we can do. You know, different people in church may have some struggles along the way. That's going to happen. 
and we can help them out. You know, when people fall down, we help them get back on their feet. But just as long as the whole church as an entirety doesn't normalize unchristian behavior and we hold to the gospel, that's something we can do. And that's a great thing. We help each other return and stay where we need to be. And that's what we want. That's what, you know, you can be part of that in your church. I can be part of that in my church. And we can hold to the gospel and we can keep from normalizing Christian behavior. So that's the takeaway for this week. And I I hope you found that helpful. And if you have, you know, please share it with someone else who you might think would find it helpful as well. But I certainly, as always, appreciate you listening in. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. We'll talk to you then. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful. 